It's good to see everybody this morning. Glad that you've come out. We've had some folks here this morning that hadn't been here in a while. We've got others that are visitors. We're glad that you're here. We want you to know that there's nothing but the finest of lessons brought from this pulpit, usually. But he's on vacation. So you're left with me this morning. Randy Carlton described it like this. He said, he's kind of like carrots and you're kind of like broccoli. So uh, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I don't think Randy likes his broccoli. Spencer has, um, he's commented a few times from up here. You'll, he'll be preaching along and he'll say something and he'll say it like, well, Paul and I disagree about that because he don't, he don't understand. And he did. The last time he did that, I had somebody come to me and say, exactly what is it that y'all got this disagreement about? And uh, the disagreement is about the waiting place of the dead. And so uh, he's wrong. I'm right. Uh, I got scriptures to back mine up. He's got a few scriptures too, but I like mine better. And uh, someday I might be brave enough to tell y'all my, my side of that, but that's not what we're going to cover this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn them to Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to start. We'll take a lot of our lesson out of there this morning. This morning I did something that I have uh, never, ever done. And I, it went so well, I think I'm going to try it again. I can stand up here and talk all day long. It don't bother me. But I am not a song leader. It scares me to death, the thought of leading singing. But this morning, Marshall Blue... Jill and Dylan's son, he comes up to me and he says, sing Jesus. Jill says, he wants you to sing Jesus Loves Me. I asked Jeff Madden, who was leading singing in early service, I said, Jeff, will you lead that? And he looks at me and he says, really? <laughs> okay, I'll lead it. So uh, I want y'all to sing loud and drown me out, but we're going to sing Jesus Loves Me. there, Danny. Anybody can do it. What's in a name? Somebody calls you by your name, what are, what are, they, what are they doing? When somebody speaks your name, what are they talking about? What does that imply when you call somebody's name? It usually reflects their reputation, their character, integrity, honesty. When someone calls your name and speaks of you, this is usually what's being reflected. It's your life. It's how you live. It's how you present yourself and the way that the world perceives you. We're told in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. A good name is a little bit more valuable than what you might think. I've heard people before say, well, I don't really care what people think about me. Really? 
As Christians, we should care what people think about us. We're told to have a good name. And we're told the value of having that good name and what it, what it does. There are people that if you, if you call their name, you don't have a very favorable memory. You don't have a very favorable thinking of that person when you call their name. There's a lot of people who've gone through history that have been evil and have been bad. And when you hear their name, nothing good comes from that. Usually names that come up are like Hitler, Mussolini, Judas Iscariot. What do you think of when you hear that name? When you hear that name, you're usually not following that with good thoughts. You don't have much respect for that person or what that person might try to do for you or how that person might try to influence you. There's a couple of people I want to look at this morning in Scripture who had good names. The first one actually is found in Acts chapter 22. And a couple of verses here, chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And what this is, this is the Apostle Paul giving an account of his conversion. His conversion is actually in Acts chapter 9, but here in chapter 22, he's telling the church about his conversion. And in verse 13 or verse 12, he says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Now, if you remember the story, Saul was headed to Damascus. To go and to, he had letters from the high priest. He was going to Damascus to arrest these rogue people who are calling themselves followers of Jesus and who are, who are proclaiming Jesus as King and Savior. Paul is on the road. He's struck him with, struck him with blindness. He says, Go into Damascus, go to the street that's called Straight, and it'll be told to you what to do. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9 that the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, Hey, I want you to go over here on Straight Street, and I want you to talk to Saul. You can read there in Acts chapter 9 where Ananias said, uh, Lord, he ain't very friendly to us. He's somebody that's putting people in prison, putting them in jail. And you want me uh, to go talk to him? You want me to go preach to him? The Lord says, yes. He's going to be valuable to me. But here in chapter 22, when Saul's recounting this story, he talks about the good name that Ananias had among the people. He was afraid, he was scared, but he went all the same to preach to somebody that needed to be preached to that maybe the world didn't think at that time would stand for that. Another one is in Luke chapter 23. When you go to Luke chapter 23, this is after the crucifixion. In verse 50, the Bible reads, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and accusations. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, 
and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath, and they rested according to the commandments. Joseph of Arimathea, a good man, a good man with a good name, a member of the council, he goes and takes the body of Jesus off the cross and puts it in a tomb. Now, with this in mind, keep these two men in mind. And I want to look what the Bible says, what Jesus talked about in chapter 6 of Luke, in verse, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it's out of the abundance at the heart his mouth speaks. A tree known by its fruits. Several years ago, I went out to California. Never been to California at that point. We go out, we go to Yosemite to see the forest fires, because that's about all that you can see out there at that time. My son takes me around and he shows me a sequoia tree. And then he takes me and he shows me a redwood tree. You know the difference between a sequoia tree and a redwood tree? Me neither. They don't have any fruit. They're just trees. They're all big trees. They're massive trees. I think realistically the redwoods get a little bit bigger. But there's nothing on those trees that I look at that I can tell any difference between any of them. But yet, when we were driving back to where we were staying, and we left the mountains, and we come down in the flats, we're driving through orange groves. That's trees that grow oranges. I know what them look like. You see them big orange balls hanging up there? That's an orange tree. I ain't real smart, but I figured that one out real quick when we were there. That's an orange tree. Because I can see the fruit. The almond trees. You could see the almond trees. We saw them shaking some of the almond trees. And with those almond trees, it was interesting to me to see the trees. And I could understand what kind of tree I was looking at because of the fruit that it was bearing. When you read of Ananias, when you read of Joseph of Arimathea, what kind of people were they? They were good people. They were honest people. They had a good reputation. And you know this because you see their fruit. You see what they did given the opportunity that was before them. You reckon they were a little bit scared? We know Ananias was. You can read that in, there in Acts chapter 9. Joseph of Arimathea, a man of the council. Is that the Sanhedrin council? The Sanhedrin council is made up of 70 people, 71 including the high priest. You've got 24 chief priests, 24, 24 elders, and 22 scribes and lawyers and the chief priests. That, that made up the Sanhedrin council. If Ananias was a member of that council, Scripture says he voted against the things, he opposed the things that the council had done with Jesus but when he left and went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, do you think he was just a little bit apprehensive, a little bit scared of what's going to happen? 
This is a man that is high in the social standings. It's suggested that he's wealthy. He had a tomb in which no one had ever laid. That seems kind of normal, doesn't it? You ever seen a tomb where they buried this guy today and then tomorrow they bury somebody else? I've actually been exposed to that. Many years ago, through work, we took a trip and we went to Switzerland. I'm on a tour bus and we're driving past all of these great things. They got a tour guide up here speaking through the microphone. And to your right, you'll see the bridge over the water. That was built by the Romans back in the Roman Empire. It's really cool stuff. We passed a cemetery. Our tour guide says, by the way, are you aware of the fact that in Switzerland, when you die and they bury you, they're only going to leave you buried for 10 years? Literally. Then they're going to dig you up and they're going to call the next you can and say, uh, come and get it. Can you imagine? What do you drive? What do you go pick that up with? I, I don't know. I mean, or do you say no? If it's not picked up, the state disposes of it. And our guide explained to us, and she said, America is a young country, and it's such a big country. You have cemeteries. You bury people, and where you bury them, you mark that ground forever, and it's nothing but a cemetery from now on. In Switzerland, the old world, as they referred to it, because there's been so many people live here for so many years and for so long that if we buried people and never used the land again, we'd run out of land. So they literally leave the body in the ground for 10 years, dig up the remains if there's anything left, and call family. That's not what Joseph of Arimathea did. Joseph had a brand new hewn and rock plot that he took and put the body of Jesus in. Some suggest again that that's a sign of his wealth. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 1 says, A good name is better than a precious ointment. With that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will, show him, I, will show, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house, that could not shake it because it had been well built. But one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is given the example here of two beach houses, if you will. We got two houses. We got one that is built solid, dug down, got a great footing. That house ain't going nowhere. You've got this other one that they just built out here, and they built it on top of the ground. Now, when you drive down the street and you look at them, they're going to look exactly the same, are they not? You're only going to know what they're made of when the storm comes, when the water rises. Jesus said that's the only time you're going to know the difference in these two. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment. What is the ointment? Some of the writers that I read suggested that the ointment was a perfumed lotion of sorts. 
that they would take and they would put it on their skin and it would keep their skin soft and it would emit this beautiful odor. My wife carries that in her purse. You know, it's hand lotion. What's the difference between a good name and some kind of an ointment, something that you smear it on your body? One superficial. That ointment's just on the outside. It's not what's inside. A good name is better than looking good and smelling good and having that good perception. The more valuable thing that you can have is that what's inside and the reputation that you've earned by doing the right thing and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Our last scripture I want to look at here is found in Luke chapter 10. When we speak of good things and good people, in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, a lawyer comes to Jesus. He comes to him to put him to a test. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Lawyer is one who studied the old law. He studied scripture. He knew what it was. Jesus says to him, he says, What's written in the law, and how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. So you got this law, you're approaching Jesus, asking the question. And Jesus said, Well, what do you think about that? You ever answered somebody that way? When they ask you a question, and you just turn around and say, Well, what do you think about that? Usually they've got a thought in mind. When they're asking you what you think, sometimes they want to hear it, and sometimes they just want to tell you what they think. But in this instance, Jesus just turns around and says, what do you think? And so he tells him, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. But verse 29 says, but he desiring to justify himself said to, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Where do I got to stop out here, Lord? How far? I, now, I'm a lawyer. I'm thought of well of the people. I'm, I'm one who knows Scripture. But I'm just asking you just exactly who is my neighbor? How far do I have to go here? Now, Jesus tells him a parable. Does anybody know the name of that parable? There's only one problem with that. The word good ain't found in this parable. You ever notice that? Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came into this place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave to him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. 
Jesus says, go and do likewise. you got three people here. Let's call it three houses. They all look the same from the outside. I'm sure in the Jewish community that the priest and the Levite probably had a pretty good standing. People thought pretty well of them. Yet when they're faced with an opportunity to help somebody, for whatever reason, they haven't got time. I've heard people preach this passage and they talk about the fact that, well, uh, a body was unclean. Uh, they didn't have a responsibility and you know you don't know what they were doing the priest wouldn't have been the one to have done it the Levite should have done it but you make all kinds of excuses for them at the end of the day there's somebody in need you have opportunity to help them and you ain't helped them the Samaritan is the one who comes upon this person and helps him he didn't ask any questions he had what it took. He had the oil. He had wine. He had bandages. He had an animal to put him on. Took him to the end. Gave some of his time to take care of somebody in need. In light of spiritual houses, in light of house with solid footing and a house built on the sand, which one of these stood the test when things came their way. I think you can easily see that the Samaritan was the one who did the right thing. Jesus tells this lawyer, you go and you do what is supposed to be done here. You do likewise. And I got a little side note for you. I said this in early service and Phil Rampey said, I'll talk to you later and straighten you out on that because I disagree with you. It's a thought. Joseph of Arimathea was a lawyer, or a scribe, or a chief priest, or an elder. Because he was on the council. So he was one of. Could it have been possible that the lawyer who asked Jesus this question, and Jesus responded with this parable of the Good Samaritan, is it possible that that lawyer could have been Joseph of Arimathea? Scripture does not tell us. It does not imply that. That's just me as I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, you know, but how cool would it be if that was the case? If it had been Jesus teaching back here in chapter 6, and then in chapter 10, Jesus uses uses him, or in chapter 22, he goes to him and does what he taught in chapter 10 when he gave the parable. So what does all this mean for us? You read of these men who have a good name, who are more than just a name only, but they're actually doers. See, that's what made these people right. This is what showed that their foundation was solid. Their faith was strong. Their obedience was strong. They were willing to do what they had the opportunity to do when the situation presented itself. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. You're going to have opportunities presented to you that you can either pass by on the other side 
or you can take time and you can help. A good name is built off of your actions. You realize that? It's not just the words. It's built off of your actions. It's built off of how you live and the things that you do daily. Can you be counted on? We need to be a people that's ready to stand up and do what needs to be done. We need to overcome our fears. Ananias, Joseph, we need to overcome that fear that we have. I think fear is something that keeps most of us from doing what we know we're supposed to be doing. I was about 19 years old, and over at Nettleton, they, uh, they let people speak on Wednesday nights, give a three- to five-minute devotional. It was what we're supposed to do. Brandon Brown's daddy, Steve Brown, finally got me to do it. I wrote every word out, word for word. I practiced it in the mirror. It lasted for three minutes and 10 seconds, but I was over the three-minute mark. That's all I cared. I was good. I scared to death sitting on that front row that Wednesday night, and I got up there. First step I took, I didn't know if I was going to walk or fall. I got up there, got behind the microphone, and I gave my whole speech, three minutes worth, in 30 seconds flat. I scared to death. That's the last time I spoke for 30 seconds, Randy. <laughs> I was scared to death, but I did it. And you know what happened? People come up to you, and they pat you on the back, and they say, good job, keep going. You did good. It's the same way I got into teaching Bible class, fifth and sixth grade Bible class, terrified. How am I going to handle these kids? And you can do it. Sometimes we have to face our fears and we have to do what we know is right, and we have to do what is in front of us and do what we're called to do and be strong in our faith. Don't let fear stop us from doing what we know is right. Have you ever talked to a coworker about Jesus? Have you ever invited somebody to church? Are you afraid of what they're going to think of you? Are you afraid of what they might say? Have you ever tried to give godly counsel to somebody? Sometimes it's, it's daunting, the idea that I have to talk to this person, I have to explain to this person that what you're doing is not what God wants you to do. You ever had to talk to a family member about something like that? Sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger than it is family. What is our fear? How can we be wrong when what we're doing is what we're called as Christians to do? Can we show some kindness and some grace and some mercy in the restaurants? I went in a Cracker Barrel the other night. They took eight people to a table that had seven chairs. That woman tore into that poor person that just led them to the table? Can you not count? There's eight of us. Felt sorry for the poor person. I didn't have a real high regard for the lady who was doing the chewing. We have to remember and we have to realize that everything that we do is what builds our name, builds our character, builds our reputation. And as Christians, we're called to have a godly reputation. 
We can make a difference in this world. We have to overcome our fears, have enough faith in God, and then do things when opportunity presents itself in front of us. There's opportunities around every one of us every day if we're willing to take it. Are you afraid? I don't know what to say. They might ask me a question that I can't answer. It's okay not to have all the answers. But it's not going to be okay just to walk away and leave them in their sin. There's things that happen on social media. It always amazes me on Facebook. There's things that are posted that sometimes they're vulgar, sometimes they're rude, sometimes someone is ripping a spouse. And I see where some of us give them a thumb up. Good job. Really? That's the counsel that we're willing to give? Is to encourage somebody in something that's wrong and ugly and vulgar and we think it's cute and give them a like sign? We need to be smarter than that. We need to think these things through and to realize that what we do, everything that we do, is what builds our name. The greatest name that you can have is that of a Christian. Are you a Christian? Have you put the world to the side? Are you willing to do what it takes to take the name of Jesus and then to live for Him? You're a Christian that you're afraid. I don't talk much about Jesus. I don't say anything to people because I'm afraid. I'm afraid how I might sound. You need to ask God to give you strength. I believe He will. I know that we will encourage you, just like they encouraged me when I was young to get up and speak, and now they can't shut me up. But encouragement comes when effort is extended. You'll get all kinds of encouragement if you'll just try. But you've got to be a Christian first. You've made excuses. You've waited long enough. Maybe fear is what's kept you in the pew. Maybe you say, I don't want to go up there in front of all them people. You need to have some strength. You need to start your walk with Jesus. If you come forward today and you decide to put on Christ in baptism, I want you to know that everybody in this room will be encouraging you and cheering you on. If you're somebody that needs prayers this morning, you need some strength, you need some encouragement, we're here for that too. If we can assist you in any way this morning, we'd, let you, we'd ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.